Amen. You can have a seat. Matt does all right with an out-of-tune guitar and a cold, right? That's right. We appreciate all that he does and all our worship team does to, to lead us in worship and to draw us into the presence of God every Sunday. You know, we began a couple weeks ago a new series that I'm calling Stand the Weight, and we're thinking about our weight on Christmas and how hard that is, especially for our kids, even though we're only a week out. And we're in this season of Advent that is all about waiting because we're thinking about the arrival of Christ, both in terms of his first arrival when he came as a baby, but also as we look forward to his return. This season sort of is all about two parallel themes running alongside each other, reminding us that we are preparing for a special holiday, but we're also preparing for eternity and how those two things come together and mesh. Now, the first couple weeks, I've talked in many ways about how waiting can be really difficult. And I've talked about sometimes waiting involves uncertainty, sometimes it involves pain, and that can make waiting really unpleasant. Now, today I want us to go in a slightly different direction and think not so much about how difficult waiting is, but the dynamic of waiting. In other words, how does waiting work in our lives? And think about it this way. Let's just pretend that you are looking for a new job, right? I mean, there is, there's a, a time comes when it's time to do something different, so you're seeking that out. And you find a listing for a job, and you, you realize, man, this job, they're looking for me, right? I've got the qualifications to meet it, the experience. I'm the person for this job. The pay looks good. The benefits look good. You'd be doing what you love to do, and so you apply. You get called for an interview online or on the phone or in person. You visit with these people, and it's like, man, I would really like to work with these people and do what they're doing, to be a part of what they're doing in that place. I want to be part of this business, and you're really hoping this is going to work out, and you finish the interview, and then what do you have to do? You have to wait, right? You got to wait until they call back or email or whatever it is they're going to do to get in touch with you. And in that waiting process, at the beginning, it's probably like every time your phone buzzes, you're reaching for it because you want to know if this is the call, this is the email, the text that's going to give you the answer. A couple days pass and you don't hear from them, but you're still thinking about it. There is an urgency about all of this, but maybe a week passes. And you're not quite as attentive to every buzz of your phone. You're not checking your email quite as often. And maybe two weeks pass and suddenly you're sort of going back to living life, thinking about other things because that sense of urgency in the waiting has waned a little bit. And I think that's the way waiting often works. And it even works that way when we're thinking about the return of Christ. Because there are times when maybe because of a sermon or something that you read, you're reminded, you know what? This life doesn't last forever, okay? It's gonna come to an end. Either I'm gonna die or Jesus is going to return. And, and all that suddenly becomes a little more urgent. It's on your thoughts. You're thinking about it and you're anticipating the return of Christ. But, but then that can, after a while, sort of slip back into the same routines, the same kind of thinking. It's not as urgent as it was, and we just go back to living life. Now, 
We're not the first ones to go through that. In fact, I think we can find that there are times in the New Testament when New Testament writers are dealing with people who had the same kind of experience. And one place that we can see that at work is a letter we call 1 Thessalonians. It's from Paul to the church in Thessalonica, an ancient city, an important city, and he's writing them about some of these issues. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've read some writings that dealt with the question of, is Jesus going to return? We're waiting. It hasn't happened. Why are we still waiting? Why do we have to wait so long? Well, the question in 1 Thessalonians is a little different. It's not so much that they're wondering if Jesus is going to return. The question really is this. Hey, Paul, you have said Jesus is coming back. You have said that it's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Weeks have passed. Years have passed. Maybe even decades. We don't understand. And here's what we really don't get, Paul. There are Christians from among our number, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and some of them have died. So what about that? We're waiting on Jesus to return, and they've died. What happens to them? Are they, are they somehow left out of all the promises? They don't get what is promised to all of us? What happens to them? And Paul deals with that question in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, when I read this passage, some of you are going to go, you know what, that one sounds pretty familiar because people like me have read this passage countless times at the grave sites of people that we love because it's all about hope. And that's a moment in which we need hope to be reminded that the grave is not the end of the story. So here's what Paul says in response to that question. What about Christians who died? 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13. Paul says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no now, Paul doesn't want them to be like everyone else because they are followers of Jesus. And he's saying, look, the world around us, and this was true of the Roman world, they sort of say when you're dead, you're dead all over just like Rover, right? That's the end of it. There's nothing after that. And he says, we, we are not like that because we see that there is more at stake than just death, because Christ has showed us what is beyond. So, verse 14, here is the basis of our faith. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So, our faith is in the one who has defeated death. Our faith is in the one who was raised from the dead and did not die again. And so, this is the one who can promise us eternal life. This is the one who can say, yes, even though there are Christians who have died, they too will be raised from the dead just as Jesus was. And that is the basis of our hope. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we, who, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we're all going to be on equal ground. Everyone's going to receive the same reward. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul says, listen, you're not going to wonder if this is it. Okay, You're not going to say, you know, 
I wonder if that's Jesus coming back or not. Maybe it's just a, a jet overhead. No, you're going to know that this is the moment. There's not going to be any question that God is at work and that nothing is going to be the same after this. After that, we are still alive and are left. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so here's the promise. We will be with the Lord forever. We're going to be in the presence of God for eternity. Jesus is going to set things right. And so we're going to be worshiping God forever. And then these words to them, and I think to us, therefore encourage one another with these words. And that's why we read it at the graves of people we love, right? Because we want to be reminded that death is not the end of the story. That we can encourage each other with the words of hope that death is not final. That it is temporary. That we will be raised from the dead. That's the promise of this passage. Now, here's the question. If this is all true, if we really do have hope in resurrection, hope that Jesus will return, how does that affect how we live? How does that impact the life that I'm leading in this life? Even though I'm looking forward to something else, how does it affect today? And Paul answers that in the next chapter, right at the end of the letter. And he gets to that sort of at the end of the section we're going to get, get at today. So bear with me as we begin. This is sort of rapid fire commands that Paul gives out. So verse 16, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So three things he says right off the bat. First of all, rejoice. Now, if you're like me, there are some times when I don't feel like rejoicing because bad stuff's happening. And yet Paul says rejoice always. So is this sort of don't worry, be happy kind of thinking? I think there's something deeper at work here. I think Paul is saying that, listen, there are times when you are going to feel like you don't want to rejoice. But what I want you to do is not necessarily manufacture joy, just make yourself happy, but to rejoice anyway. So maybe to go in a room filled with Christians and express what God has done, just as we've done this morning. To rejoice in the blessings of God, even when we're going through some difficulty. And then Paul says, pray continually. So none of us can just sort of get on our knees and pray all day long, every day, because we've got to work, got to take care of our kids, got to feed our family, all those things that have to be done. So what does Paul mean? I think he means make life a conversation with God. Yes, we need appointed times to pray, some, some specific time where I'm going to spend some time talking to God. But, but prayer can really be intermingled with all of our day. When something good happens, we can praise God for it. When we need help with something, we can ask God for that help. When we're struggling with our emotions, we can ask God to bless us with peace and calm. We can make all of life a conversation with God. So pray continually. And then he says, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, if you're like me, you've had some circumstances in your life in which you did not want to give thanks because it was unpleasant. It was difficult. You wish you didn't even have memory of what happened in that moment. But notice that Paul doesn't say, give thanks for all circumstances. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. 
So whether we're in a situation where things are really going very, very well, and we're thankful for what's going on, or we're in a situation where things are not going so well, when we're struggling through something with somebody or with work or with money or anything else, there are still things in that moment for which we can give thanks. We can still give thanks for the fact that God has blessed us with salvation, with eternal life. We can still give thanks that God is providing for our basic needs. We can still give thanks that we're part of a church that is serving God, that there are people that love us. We can give thanks for all those things even when we're in the midst of difficulty that may have nothing to do with any of those things. So we give thanks in all circumstances. So these rapid fire, rejoice, uh, praise God, give thanks, all those things that we were talking about. And then he gives another one, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Now we hear that first line, do not quench the spirit. And I've heard lots of Christians really worry and struggle over this line. Am I quenching the Spirit of God and I don't even know it? Well, what Paul is saying is, listen, the Spirit of God is indwelling you as a follower of Jesus. Jesus promised it, especially in the Gospel of John. We see Jesus talking about this over and over, that God's Spirit would fill His people. But what does it mean to quench God's spirit? It's like extinguishing a fire, okay? We put it out. And I think this is the way we do it the most often. When we begin to talk about the spirit, there's all kinds of controversy. How does the spirit work among Christians? How does he express himself among Christians now? Is it like it was in the first century? Is it different? And all this controversy makes us go, you know what? Why don't we just not even talk about this? Because everybody has their opinion, so we'll just... Well, just leave it alone. And that may be the most effective way that we as Christians in the 21st century have of quenching the Spirit of God by just ignoring Him. But here's God's promise that the very way God is at work in our lives after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is through His Spirit. And we're going to ignore that? No. God may not work through His Spirit in the same way He did in the first century. Paul talks about prophecy here. I've not experienced that. But the Spirit does work. The Spirit gives God's people gifts of things like leadership and teaching and preaching and serving and encouraging. And we need to take those gifts from God's Spirit and use them for the good of the church and for the good of each other and the good of the community around us. So God's Spirit is at work, and the last thing we want to do is say, oh, let's don't talk about it because it's just too controversial. Let's just ignore that. Because we need God's Spirit at work. And Paul talks about a way that we need God's Spirit at work because he ties this all together, summarizes it all, and brings together everything we've been talking about today in verse 23. May God Himself... The God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Paul says, listen. 
May God himself, through his spirit, be so at work in you that he sanctifies you. Now, there's a word that we don't use every day. It's not a word we use outside church and anymore. It's not a word that we use very much inside church. So what is he talking about? What is to sanctify someone or to make it a noun sanctification? What's that all about? It's just really this. God making us holy. That's, That's the simplest definition. God is making us holy. And you say, well, listen, I am anything but holy. That is not me. And yet, here's Paul saying, don't quench the Spirit because the Spirit is at work sanctifying you, making you holy. Maybe even if you don't feel all that holy. But that's God at work in you. He says, sanctify you through and through so that you may be kept blameless, spirit, soul, body. So all of you, every part of you, your body, your physicality, your emotions, your spirituality, every part of you would be blameless. So Paul is saying he expects us to be perfect. No. Paul talks about his own sin. Read Romans 7. He knows he doesn't measure up. But the point is, God is at work in us, making us more and more holy and blameless through our lives. Not because we're so good that because of our own moral will, we can just withstand every temptation, but because God's Spirit is at work in us, changing us and creating the right person within us. That's what we're talking about. God's Spirit at work in our lives doing. So so what's Paul saying here? I think here's our lesson. Hope, the hope we have that Jesus returns leads to holiness. If we really believe that Jesus is going to return, it changes the way we live. Now, it's not because we somehow believe that I can be good enough. All right, I'm good enough. Now that God has to take me. I'm good enough, God has to accept me. We are always justified, made righteous by the powerful blood of Jesus on the cross. We are made righteous because we put our faith in Him. Here's what we're talking about. We're saying we know Jesus is going to return. And because of all that Jesus has done for us, we want to respond with a life that is as blameless, as holy as we can possibly live with God's Spirit at work in us because He's more powerful than us. This is hope leading to holiness, changing who we are, making us holy because we really do believe that we're not just sort of coasting along in this life and we'll just see what happens, but that we believe that God is at work leading this up to a point where Jesus returns and our hope is fulfilled. So what does that look like? I'd say three things. First of all, show gratitude. He says it two or three different ways in this short passage. That there are ways to be be thankful for what God has done for us. To be thankful for small things and large things that God has done for us even in this week. So, So we focus in on how God has blessed us for now, for this week, for eternity. And this again is God's Spirit at work. Second, 
anticipate Jesus' return. Now, this is a little harder. Because we've been waiting a long time. We've talked about that in this series, that we have been standing this wait as Christians for a couple thousand years. And last week we talked about how God's time is different from our time. And, and if you, you didn't hear that message, go back and listen to that because it sets up some of what we're talking today. But, but the point is, we live with a sense of urgency. That there could be a moment at any time when Jesus returns. We don't know when that's going to be, but we're going to know it happens when it happens. We're not going to mistake it. And so it's not just a reminder, okay, the preacher talked about that last Sunday, or I happened to read Revelation and it got all this stuff in my mind, but that whatever's going on, we are moving forward to something that God is going to do. And then finally, choose holiness. Allow your hope to lead you to holiness. This is the way I think it works. Not that we're trying to earn something from God, but here's the question. When Jesus returns, I want to be ready. I want to be prepared, not because I'm so good, but because I'm forgiven, okay? But I want to be in that moment doing what God has called me to do. So it leaves us with maybe some questions that are a little challenging. Leaves us with this question. We look back on the week behind us. Yeah, we can see things that we could be thankful for, that we could show gratitude to God for. We might even be able, able to see some ways that God guided us toward what was right and good when we were sort of going in the wrong direction. But in this last week, when were the moments that you would have been most comfortable, most proud of who you are, if Jesus had come back in that moment, what are the moments in which you would have been most pleased to see Jesus? And then on the other hand, what are the moments that you look back and you say, you know, I'm glad I wasn't caught in that moment with Jesus returning. Now, I don't believe that God is trying to trick us. I don't believe God is trying to catch us in something. Some moment that we now regret and that God was, was going to come back and just sort of get us for that moment. Because last week we talked about one of the reasons that God has waited is because He is gracious and He wants us to come to repentance. I think God wants us to come to Him. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a tricky God who's trying to catch us in something wrong. But we're talking about living our lives in response to what Jesus has done so that more and more we are leading a life that pleases God and so that if in any of those moments Jesus returns, we will be pleased at what we're doing in that time. And I wonder how that would transform us. I wonder how that would change you and I in the way that we live if we really had that sense of urgency. And I wonder how it would transform us as a church. If we had the sense of urgency that Jesus could return at any moment, how would it change the way we interact with each other and the way that we interact with the community around us? Would we have a heightened sense that 
We need to show people who Jesus is, both through our words and our actions, so that they can participate in what God is doing, so that God's Spirit can fill them in the same way that it's filled us and lead them to blamelessness and lead them to forgiveness and grace. How would it change us if we really lived in a way that acknowledged that our hope leads us to holiness? Let's pray together. That we're thankful for the hope that we share as Christians, that we are a people of hope. We celebrate that at Christmas, we celebrate it at Easter, but it's really part of every day. And God, we pray that the hope that you have given us will lead us to a life of holiness. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.